Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, good. And you could say crazy, but really, I think it's three good martinis today on the Three Martini Lunch. The last one, not so much about politics. It is December 20th, after all. So as we get close to Christmas, we're going to talk a little bit more about, of course, uh, our favorite Christmas movie of all time. But uh, all in due time. First, we go to our good martini now, Jim. And uh, yesterday, uh, you had the chance to have a pretty long and a varied conversation with Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, not only about what he's doing as governor, but also the speculation that he's interested in the 2024 presidential race and uh, just kind of how he sees his job and, and sees the job of a political leader. And uh, overall, I think uh, the conclusions from this interview are pretty strong. He claims he's uh, not looking that strongly at 2024. I didn't see a just no answer. It was a pretty long answer about being mostly focused on Virginia. So we'll see in due time, I guess. But uh, what he's doing in Virginia is uh, focusing like a laser on the economy, uh, strong schools, law enforcement, you know, the things that usually get Republicans elected and keep them in office if they stay focused on those things. And so far, so good. Yeah. On the question of 2024, I told his staff that that was not the focus of the interview. I just wanted to throw in one or two questions like that. And keep in mind that by ordinarily standards, this is kind of ridiculous. He's only been in office for a year. This is the first elected office he's been in. He's a very smart, respectable guy. But in normal times, that wasn't enough experience to be president of the United States. Now, of course, the last president uh, hadn't been in any office. And then, of course, Barack Obama had been in the Senate for about 20 minutes. I'm sorry, an entire two years before he chose to run for president. So, but on the other hand, what Youngkin did in uh, 2021 is pretty much exactly what the Republican Party wants to do and needs to do in a presidential election. He'd gotten the traditional Trump-supporting, blue-collar, white, rural Trump vote out in large enough percentages and numbers, but also simultaneously appealed to the suburban soccer moms and kept the margins down. And so you needed somebody with one leg in each sphere, so to speak, and he had... uh, Managed to do that. So you can understand why Republicans like, huh, you know, would you be interested in this? And he said he's flattered by it. He's honored by it. He's humbled by it, but that he's, you know, got a job ahead. It's worth knowing for the past year, he said, oh, you know, I'm focused on being governor and I'm not even thinking about 2024. We've still got 2022 midterms to get through. Well, the 2022 midterms are over. And he's basically saying, no, I'm laser focused on my job. I then followed up with what I thought was an unusual way of putting this question, which is, do you think about being president? And I imagine that. Almost every elected official thinks about being president one way or another. And he said the answer was no, he does not think about it. So that's about as clear. If he comes out and announces sometime in the next year, it's going to these answers like this are going to look really silly. So um, but most of the discussion was about his agenda in the uh, upcoming year in the state legislature. Worth noting, the Virginia state legislature traditionally has a very short calendar, although they can extend it. There are probably like seven points that I'll just run through them really quickly. Uh, $1 billion in tax cuts, including a slight reduction in the top income tax rate. By the way, if you make more than $17,000 in Virginia, you're in the top tax bracket. Um, there'd be, in addition to also bringing down the corporate tax rate by a percentage point. 
Um, he uh, the big centerpiece, and I think the one that really yeah you know, he he said he refused to prioritize them, but the way he talked about it, I think this one is at or near the top of the list was what he calls the Right Help Right Now program, which is designed the sweeping overhaul of state behavioral health and substance abuse programs, mental health counseling, all the different things that are meant to prevent people from harming themselves, people from harming others, and if they have mental health problems or addiction issues, uh, really wants to completely overhaul that and try a new approach. In addition to the tax cuts, workforce development, business-ready sites, et cetera, wants to put a $500 million towards that, uh, $30 million to recruit 2,000 new police officers, uh, as well as additional funding for prosecutors, um, $17 million for literacy and education, $50 million for teacher performance bonuses, $175 million designed to recruit what the categories they call quiet heroes, teachers, nurses, and law enforcement. He talked a bit about the out inflow and outflow of Virginia. Virginia's population is still growing, but they have reached a point, I guess it was back in 2013 or so, that more people were moving out of the state and moving in. And usually you lost a bunch of retirees. People retired down in Florida. That was about normal. But in addition to that, you've started to see people from age 20 to 35 start to move out of the state in larger numbers. And Youngkin is quite concerned about that, really wants to reverse that. Um, so they're you know going to put you know uh, bonuses, recruitment, things like that. Finally, $10 million for nuclear and other zero-carbon technologies and $685 million for resiliency in the Chesapeake Bay and other environmental causes. So these are all increases upon previous state funding. So we can now start accusing him of being a big spending governor. Just kidding, governor. Uh-huh. The other thing is, you know, so there, there's all of this, but you know, this is, you're like, oh my God, how can they afford this? Well, Virginia right now has about $3.6 billion in a surplus that it's sitting on right now. So he wants to cut taxes, that billion he said, and then use the surplus to fund all of these other initiatives. Probably also worth noting, this is a governor who, you know, he's a Republican, he took office. His job approval rating is still in the high, in the low 50s, more than a majority. His disapproval rating is still in the 30s. And even though it went down a bit, he still has about one out of every three Democrats in the state approve of the job he's doing, which is kind of interesting. And I think uh, not something you necessarily see from a governor who I think is indisputably conservative. So good start. It's He's been in office one year. I, I think it's, you know, when you're limited to one term, each year means a lot. And I think, I don't want to say this would be make or break for him, but I think his legacy is going to be very heavily shaped by what he can get done. And as I said, the state legislative calendar usually isn't that long, and they've got uh, you know state legislative elections coming up in November. So a very consequential year for Glenn Youngkin is coming up right now. Yeah, depending on how those state legislative elections go, this could be the last year that he really has a chance to move forward in his agenda. And even this year, he needs to get a little bit of help from Democrats in the state Senate. And we saw that he did get some of that on you know parental choice for masks and and several other things uh, in, the, in the first year of his administration. So we'll see what he can get moving on. We talked about uh, school choice in the past as well. That's a big issue for him. Overall, I like Glenn Youngkin. I did see over the weekend that somebody asked him if he was going to be cutting the car tax. And he said that was a local issue. And Jim, I think that's partially right uh, because we obviously pay our car taxes to our counties. But I distinctly remember Jim Gilmore cutting the car tax through the legislature. And I also remember uh, Bob McDonald raising our car taxes with his ridiculous transportation bill uh, towards the end of his administration. So while I think there's certain things that local governments can do because in more high population areas, the car tax is higher I do think there's something that can be done in Richmond, uh, so I would encourage him to look into that a little more. That is a good point, and I think it is you know, always worth it for governors to study their predecessors. You think about it, Greg, the ability to actually take that action on the car tax by Gilmore, um, that's what fueled his runaway success as a presidential candidate in 2016. 
Absolutely. If you'd been able to completely repeal the car tax, it would have been President Gilmore. Thoroughly confident of that. Another thing Glenn Youngkin needs to focus on, of course, is as the head of the executive branch in the Commonwealth of Virginia, is making sure he's got a healthy, vibrant, happy workplace. And that's where HR is really, really important. And Glenn Youngkin can't focus on all that stuff. So he's going to need some help. And so he should probably hire Bambi. You know, Greg, I think about how many people who have a dream of starting a business. Usually at some point, there's this like horrible realization that they love making their widgets or selling things on Etsy or selling things on eBay, whatever they're doing, all of a sudden they've hired people and they need to worry about their employees and they need a human resources department and they don't do that. And they didn't get into that business so that they could do these sorts of things. In fact, getting away from the issues of human of uh, human resources is one of the reasons people want to start their own businesses. Well, Bambi is an HR platform built for businesses like yours. So you can automate all those practices and get your own dedicated manager. You know, ordinarily just hiring somebody to handle your HR issues as an employee, that can cost you up to $80,000 a year. But with Bambi, you just get somebody and they're just $99 a month. And remember, there's no hidden fees. Cancel anytime. Go to Bambi.com slash martini right now for your free HR audit. That's spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash martini. Bambi.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our second martini, but it's also good. The Supreme Court uh, announcing that uh, Title 42 is going to stay for the moment. Chief Justice John Roberts putting a temporary hold on the termination of uh, Title 42 until there can be an emergency hearing on it. The Biden administration wanted it to end uh, tomorrow, and there was already an increased surge at the border. We talked about that a little bit earlier in the week with Martha Raddatz carrying the water for the Democrats, saying it's the Republicans' fault for talking about the problem. And so, Jim, we don't know exactly how this is going to shake out after the emergency hearing, but uh, glad for the stay, and hopefully the states get their way uh, in short order here. We shouldn't necessarily take this temporary stay as an indication of how the Supreme Court's going to rule, but I do kind of look at this and wonder how many people want to be on the hook for the consequences of getting rid of fi- Title 42. Um, I'm looking at a statement from Arizona Attorney General Mark Brnovich, um, who put in a statement Monday who said that getting rid of it's going to endanger more Americans. But here's the thing. Unlawful crossings, which are currently estimated about 7,000 a day, could surge to as many as 18,000 a day. That's more than doubling. Now, the question is, let's see, let's say they decide to repeal it. Uh, obviously, this is the sort of thing that you know the uh, new Republican House, which will take over on January 3rd, I would be fast tracking this. This would be very high on my my uh, my priority list. Make put send it to the Senate. Make the Democrats filibuster it. I don't know if those red state, purple state uh, Democrats want to be on the hook and say, "Oh no, no, don't you dare restore Title 42." And then I'm not so sure how much the administration, after seeing a surge, you know, if it comes forward after the repeal of Title 42, as everybody seems to expect, um, I don't know. I wonder if they may back down on that. I kind of have this feeling that. Uh, the administration's ability to get away with this only happens as long as the country isn't paying that much attention to the border. If you see these numbers double overnight, which is that they're warning about, but you know, you're, you sure are going to see a, hot, a lot more uh, attention and national coverage at this. Republicans can absolutely pound the podium on this. And I think they have a chance of winning this fight. I'm not 100% sure, but things are looking a little bit better than they did not so long ago. Yeah, it's interesting to see the states uh, fighting the federal government on this. It, I mean, it should be the federal government's responsibility, but it's the states that are suffering as a result of the federal government's 
either incompetence or unwillingness to deal with this. Uh, whatever the, the reason is, it's, it's a complete failure on the part of the federal government. So the states want to do something about it. And the federal government's basically trying to stop them uh, from keeping order down there. So uh, hopefully the Supreme Court uh, sides with the states on this because uh, the numbers getting exponentially worse down there uh, is just unfathomable. And it's going to be uh, lead to a lot of problems from national security to local crime to drugs and uh, accidental overdoses, human trafficking. I mean, it's just everything gets exponentially worse as a result of the end of Title 42. And why the administration wants to do this is beyond me. All right, Jim, on to our final martini now. I think it's a good martini. Some people think it's a crazy martini. But it is December 20th, which means we're only four days away from the annual Nakatomi Corporation Christmas party on the 30th floor of uh, Nakatomi Plaza. And Jim, just yesterday, because there's always the debate every year whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie, Stephen D'Souza, who was one of the two main writers of uh, the screenplay for Die Hard, uh, tweeted out a handy chart. Is it a Christmas movie or not checklist? And it's comparing Die Hard to White Christmas. First category takes place during the Christmas holiday. Die Hard, entirely White Christmas. First and final scenes only. Next category, setting is a Christmas party. Die Hard, entirely White Christmas. Final scene only. Number of Christmas songs, Die Hard, Four, Let It Snow, Winter Wonderland, Christmas and Hollis, of course, and Jingle Bells. In White Christmas, Two, White Christmas and Snow. Party venue threatened by terrorists in Die Hard by foreclosure in White Christmas. Uh, And then further on, you've got uh, German ringleader Hans Gruber in one and Hitler in the other. Uh, Government incompetence, FBI overreacts in Die Hard, Pentagon fires General Waverly in White Christmas. Uh, and then they say the body count is actually much higher in uh, White Christmas because the first scene is in the Battle of the Bulge. And then uh, the selfless sacrifice is uh, John McClane running barefoot over broken glass in one. And in White Christmas, Danny Kaye upgrades Vera Ellen's train ticket. So uh, obviously, uh, we would consider uh, Die Hard a superior. We've said over and over again, it's a Christmas movie. I'm sure we've both had a chance to watch it again this Christmas season, Jim. I know I have. So as you watch it again and, uh, and and bask in the excellence of this film, what stands out to you and what stands out to you potentially of uh, Mr. D'Souza's uh, comparisons here? Well, one thing that I'm, I'm, I admit I'm a little irritated by, Greg, is that there's even this debate is still going on. To me, it's long since been resolved. And really, it's not even a question of is Die Hard a Christmas movie? It's what is the second best Christmas movie of all time? Because Die Hard is clearly the best Christmas movie of all time. And the answer to that question, of course, is Die Hard 2. Also set at Christmas, meaning Die Hard is the top two Christmas movies of all time and everything else is. That's a little bit tongue in cheek, but I observe that like the people who say it's not a, a Christmas movie basically are saying, I, I think the contention is an action movie cannot be a Christmas movie, which I think is uh, limiting the definition of a Christmas movie uh, unnecessarily and on a rather arbitrary way. Um, there have been horror movies set at Christmas. There have been. Uh, okay, they're basically saying that a Christmas movie has to have, uh, has to be kind of saccharine, has to be kind of sappy, has to be, you know, heartwarming and involves Santa as a character, has to be made for kids. And if you want to say, you know, I think we all agree, Die Hard is not a Christmas movie for kids, but it's kind of this idea of like, no, no, you, once you're, you're, you're limiting what a Christmas movie could be. The other thing I was thinking about in light of, of this ar- continuing argument. Uh, Our listeners may have heard of uh, a screenwriter and director by the name of Shane Black. Now, Shane Black, sadly, was not associated with Die Hard, so he cannot be be considered one of the all-time greats. But he's made a lot of other great action movies. Uh, He was a screenwriter for Lethal Weapon, 
Uh, he directed Iron Man three. A whole people have noticed a whole bunch of his movies take place around Christmas time. The Nice Guys, uh, Long Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And somebody asked, like, why do you do? Why are all of your mov- your movies or so many of your movies set at Christmas time? And he said it automatically heightens the emotional stakes of the story. I thought that was very interesting, and I think that's actually a, a ref- reflects a very key part of that movie of Die Hard. Um, you could set, you know, you could have any party at a at a big corporation uh, on a high level of a skyscraper. It could happen at any time. Uh, they could take hostages. They could be trying to drill into the bank, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact that it's happening at Christmas time, that's the only time you'd have everybody up at the Nakatomi Corporation up at that place. It's the only time that ev- the rest of the building would be effectively abandoned. It's the only time that uh, security would be minimal. Uh, police response might be a little bit slower. All these other factors play into it. And of course, it heightens the emotional stakes of will John McClane and will Holly McClane get home to their kids in time for Christmas? Could you try to set the movie at another time of year? I guess you could, but it just wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense to, you know, oh, it's the big 4th of July party for the corporation or something like that. Um, I think it's inherent to the story. I think it's at the heart of that story. Um, and as we talk about, you know, the the emotional theme and the, the subplot of Will John McClane and Holly McClane reconcile, look, it matters more because it's Christmas. Uh, they still have all of this tension. They still have all of this conflict, but they both want to be together at Christmas. They want to figure out, you know, John McClane is both angry at his wife and loves his wife. And he's actually angry at himself for not, you know, believing in his wife. All of this stuff is going on. And all of it means more because it's Christmas. If you said it at any other time of the year, it's just not the same. Um, and I think if you look, if, if you subscribe to the theory that the Die Hard movies got worse as they went on, and I think that's a pretty strong uh, there's a lot of evidence to support that. I think the only question you and I have discussed this before is whether Die Hard with a Vengeance, the third movie in the series, uh, is better than the second one, Die Hard 2, Died Harder, set at Dulles Airport. By the way, I chose to have my family watch that shortly after Thanksgiving. And I got to tell you, Greg, the naked tush of Colonel Stewart early on in the first five minutes wasn't something I remembered and not something I wanted to show in front of my kids, spouse, and in-laws. Nonetheless, it passed very quickly and everybody everybody seemed to enjoy it, but they also thought I was a little bit crazy for saying, yes, this is the kind of Christmas movie the whole family should watch. Yeah, as I recall, that was uh, thoroughly unnecessary and gratuitous. So that was uh, unfortunate in the uh, second Die Hard. But uh, other than that, uh, I think it's uh, a decent movie. I mean, Die Hard 1 is so much better than than all the others that the others, uh, you know, struggle to keep up. But two and three are worth seeing, I would say. Um, I enjoy watching it and looking for just different little nuances every time. And the last time I watched it, Jim, you're going to you're going to croak when you hear this. A qualified appreciation for Dwayne T. Robinson and not not a lot, but because Dwayne T. Robinson is a moron on virtually every single level. But even though his instincts are generally misplaced, they're better than the FBI guys because he didn't like the idea of the blackout uh, because he didn't want the mayor to be mad at him, not because he thought it was going to help the terrorists, but he still wouldn't have done it. And then he also didn't like the idea of keeping the guys up next to the building when they weren't getting in on the initial police raid. And the guy next to him said, they're almost there. They're almost there. And so yeah, Dwayne T. Robinson, not helpful, you know, trying to chase down Asian Dawn and all that stuff. Not a good person to have on scene. But the fact that he wasn't the worst guy on the scene, despite his um, instincts, is, is quite the thing. I also really appreciate, and I had noticed this before, but I, I paid more attention at this time, the fact that um, Carl and Theo had a bet 
on uh, whether or not uh, Hans was going to have to kill Takagi in the beginning uh, was uh, a nice little side mm-hmm. thing there that you, that you don't necessarily need, but it's a, it's a little comic relief in a, in a tense situation. Uh, my kids uh, knew that we were going to watch Die Hard, and they tried to sneak downstairs right before Takagi got plugged. And so we had to, so we had to pause it and uh, and send them back upstairs because we've got one that doesn't like any sort of blood at all. I'm like, is this a bloody movie? Yes, yes, yes it is. Yes, it is. Maybe among the bloodiest, certainly yes. among the most viscerally painful. Have you ever stepped on a tack or a Lego? Picture that times a thousand. You have an idea. Exactly. Speaking of which, my older daughter wanted to correct the record from yesterday. She insists and wants the world to know that she's the one who shot me in the back of the head. With the Nerf gun and yelled six Semper Tyrannus. Since I was facing the other way, I guess that could be the case. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I, I, I had a very strongly worded clarification when I got home yesterday. So I'm glad she's listening. Your, your <laughs> yes. little ones are adorable. Exactly. Um, I, one last thought on Dwayne T. Robinson. Uh, yeah. I just going to observe, you know, I look, obviously for time, you have to take out a lot of, you know, scenes that can kind of flesh out some of these characters. My understanding is that the original draft of the screenplay had a reference to Dwayne T. Robinson, the deputy chief of the LAPD, the idea that he's unqualified for the job and that it was nepotism or favoritism. And then, in fact, his previous job had been a high school principal, uh, best known for keeping kids in detention on Saturdays. Uh, and, you know, the idea that uh, he'd always been kind of power hungry and enjoyed, you know, lording it over people and that his habits had just simply continued. But uh, but apparently, uh, apparently that got cut out. Maybe at some point we'll form a club and discuss it over breakfast. Well, ex- exactly. You could do that. You could do that because uh, he had a promising career in education. And then he got hired around the holidays uh, in the mid-1980s to steal the classified crop report on frozen concentrate orange <laughs> juice futures. And that led to him being run out of education. He was scrambling for a job. He had a contact at the LAPD. And so you're right. He wasn't ready for that moment. And it's just a Whole also, sequence of yeah. events. Yeah. There's a stray line as Richard Thornburg is yelling at his coworkers. Somebody said, you you failed at the EPA and you failed here. Um, and I'm not sure what that's a reference to. but uh. Yeah. He's the worst villain of everyone in Die Hard. <laughs> which, Richard which really, Thornburg. It's William Atherton, the actor who just, you know, whenever you need smug, insufferable, a face you just want to punch and or see an old lady taser, that's what you call William Atherton. Yes, yes, exactly. That's one of the great moments of the movie, too, when Holly McLean gets to slug him. But uh, anyway, if you haven't seen Die Hard, give it a couple hours. Some people, you know, they actually make that part of their Christmas Eve uh, ritual. Uh, that's not part of ours, but we definitely get to it at some point in the holiday season. And now, Jim, people have been pointing out to us on Twitter uh, that there are essentially Hans Gruber falling off of Nakatomi Plaza advent calendars. And as the days go by in December, you get closer and closer to the pavement out front of uh of the building so uh haven't gotten one of those yet uh don't want to get away from the true meaning of christmas but uh uh if you're going to celebrate with die hard it's not a bad little trinket to have that sounds pretty good i also seem to remember seeing years ago somebody did a stage play entitled the nakatomi corporation christmas party 1988 which was all supposed to be set before the terrorists take over and it's supposed to be about all the background characters, including the pregnant secretary and all that kind of stuff. And I never had a chance to see that. I'd kind of love to see what you, know, what you could do with uh, those characters and those circumstances and the audience knowing that disaster is about to befall all these characters. Oh, a diehard prequel. Oh, mm. that would have that been fascinating. Unfortunately, it's impossible to do we now with the proper actors. Yeah, we shouldn't say that too loud, Greg. Somebody will think that up and say, aha, you know. 
it's the mid 80s and officer john mcclain is you know yes the hollywood would totally ruin it right now so i don't want to give anybody that idea let's just imagine it uh leading up to uh the greatest action movie of all time so anyway jim uh glad we could squeeze in a little more diehard because you know we can do that whenever we want uh but it's uh it's definitely a fun part of the christmas season and uh in the meantime i will talk to you tomorrow see you then see you tomorrow greg Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Uh, thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He is at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Don't forget about Jim's brand new novel, Gathering Five Storms, and the short story, Saving the Devil. Have a terrific day. Tuesday and join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.